Good morning. With a lot of excitement, I read the verses for this morning. Um, from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. The Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated them with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give thighs of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went, his, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thank you, Angel. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. So this year, as we have been going through the weeks leading up to Easter, we've been looking each week at a different parable of Jesus, stories that he tells us to teach us what God is like and what living in God's kingdom is like. And the past couple weeks, we've been looking at stories he told that have to do with money and specifically how God wants us to use our money to prepare for eternity. And today, we're not looking at money again, but we are looking at the question of why we do what we do and how that helps us prepare properly for eternity. And so as we look at today's parable, what we're going to see is that repentance is the only path to God. Repentance is the only path to God. And today we're going to just look at the story and then talk about what it means. So let's pray and then we'll look at the story. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this chance to get together. We thank you for your word and that you've spoken to us and that you've taught us who you are and how you want us to live in response to you. I pray that you'd speak to us today as we look at your word. And in Jesus' name, amen. So in today's passage, Jesus, he's telling a story. And at the very, very start of the story, we get some very important background information. In verse nine, it tells us who he told this story to. It says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, I know the word righteous isn't necessarily the most popular common word to use today. So if it's a confusing word to you, here's what it means. It means that they have lived up to God's requirements. Someone who's righteous has a right relationship with God. They're on his good side. And so the people that Jesus is telling this story to are people who are really good people. And they look at all the good things that they've done and they think, isn't God lucky to have someone like me on his team? And because they trust in their own righteousness and goodness, they treat others with contempt. They look at all the people around them who can't live up to the high, high standard that they've set. And they think, what a bunch of lazy, no good sinners. You know, God must be so pleased to have me as one of his good guys on his team rather than them. That's, that's the perspective that these people have as they look at the world. And these are the people that Jesus is telling this story to. Now, how does that shape the way we read the story? Well, as you look at the story, as you were just le listening to the story being read, does one of the characters in the story 
remind you of that description? The answer is yes. The Pharisee who comes up and just prays about how wonderful and awesome he is, is supposed to be a picture of the type of person that's listening to this story. That's who Jesus is telling the story to. He's putting them into the story so they can see themselves in it. And in case you don't know much about Jewish culture in Jesus' day, if, if you're telling a story in Jesus' day about different Jewish people, the Pharisees are the good guys, right? God is the hero of the story. The Pharisees are his sidekick. They're like, Robin's not necessarily the most popular sidekick, you know, but, but they are the sidekick. If God is the ultimate Batman, they're his Robin, right? And so they were these religious leaders and they had committed their entire lives to studying God's word, learning it, memorizing it, and obeying every single last letter of it. And in our world, you might be like, ah, sounds kind of lame. I'm not sure why I would listen to those people. But in the Jewish world of Jesus' day, these guys were the heroes. And you know why? Because they knew their history. They knew that in the Old Testament, God's people had disobeyed God. And because they disobeyed God, God sent the entire nation into 70 years of exile where they were slaves in a foreign country. And they learned their lesson from that experience. We need to take God seriously. We need to obey him the best we can because it's not just a matter of being good people. It's actually a matter of national security. Right? Us being able to obey God is our first line of defense against foreign powers invading us and taking us over. So the Pharisees, they're not just good moral people who can teach everyone else to be good moral people. They are like the first line of national defense for the nation. They are the good guys. When this Pharisee goes up to pray, he's a hero. When the parents see him walking into the room, they would turn to their kids and be like, when you grow up, I want you to be like that man. So that's the first guy of the two guys who's going up to the temple to pray. The second guy is a tax collector. And tax collectors are just the opposite of the Pharisees in every single way. The Pharisees are the good guys who, who carry the hope of Israel's future, of them becoming a free nation and having their own national sovereignty. The tax collectors are the guys who sold out their nation to the invading powers just so they could get a little more money in their pockets, right? So Israel was under control of Rome during this time. And when Rome would come in and conquer a place, they would take certain types of taxes. They would hire locals from that area to collect. And it wasn't like a job at the Hong Kong Inland Revenue Department where you just send in a resume and the, the best candidate gets the job. No, it was a job that you had to bid for. You had to pay Rome for the right to collect taxes from your fellow countrymen. And why would you pay money for that? Well, it's because you could make it all back and more by extorting and robbing your fellow countrymen. You take the taxes they owe to Rome, you'd add on however much you wanted in your own pocket, and you'd tell them this is your tax bill. And if they refused to pay, you'd get the Roman soldiers to come and beat them up or throw them into prison. It was a cruel and horrible and nasty job where people sold out their friends and family for the sake of getting a little more money in their pockets. And Everyone in the society of that day hated tax collectors. Like if you want to know how badly they hated tax collectors, the moment someone became a tax collector, they were no longer allowed to go into their local synagogue. 
The moment you became a tax collector, your testimony was no longer valid in court. If you were a beggar, you couldn't take money from a tax collector because it was considered receiving stolen goods. All the religious leaders of their day who were super passionate about obeying God's law, obeying the Ten Commandments, you know, like do not steal, do not lie. They said to the Israelite people, it's okay to lie to tax collectors. It's not wrong. It's not a sin. God will not be upset with you if you lie to tax collectors, right? There were two different Israelite religious groups that were the main groups. They disagreed on everything. They agreed on that. It is okay to lie to tax collectors because they are the scum of the earth. They are the worst people you could possibly be. And so the, the Pharisees are God's sidekick in fighting for good. The tax collectors are just the epitome of the evil that they are fighting against. That's, that's what's happening in this scene as these two men go up to the temple to pray. If you want to think of a modern day example of what tax collecting might look like, it could be something like a drug dealer or a pimp, someone who just oppresses and destroys other people for the sake of getting a little extra money in their pockets. And so in Jesus' story, these are the two people who come into the temple to pray, the ultimate good guy and the ultimate bad guy. And the Pharisee, the good guy, prays first. He stands by himself away from all the normal people whose touch could pollute him and corrupt him. And he starts his prayer, God... I thank you. Now, is that a good way to start a prayer? Yes, that is, that is a good way to start a prayer. He's praying to God, the only one worthy of being prayed to. He's thanking God. He's not taking credit for the good things in his life. He's recognizing all the good things in life I have come from God. He's not trying to take credit for him. And then he keeps praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, a couple of things to notice here. First, this guy morally is a really, really good guy. He's honest. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He goes above and beyond God's law in his attempt to honor God. So in the Old Testament, they had laws about when you received income from certain types of things, you had to give a tithe. You had to take 10% of that thing and give it back to God. And in the Old Testament, they had laws about fasting, that one day per year, everyone in the nation of Israel had to go without eating food as a sign of how sorry they were for the wrong things they'd done. But this guy, he's like, I don't just give 10% of some things I get. I give 10% of everything I get. I don't just go one day per year without eating food. I go two days per week without eating food. He takes the things that God says to do. He does even more than required. He's a genuinely morally good dude. And second, as we already noted, he's giving thanks to God for all this goodness. He, he's saying all these good things that I do, I do because God is good to me. So that's his prayer. And then the tax collector stands up to pray. And it says he's standing far off. He knows people don't want to be around him. People are, feel like they'll be polluted by him if he gets too close. So he stands far away and he prays. He won't lift up his eyes to heaven. That was uh, a way of, you know, looking up to where God doesn't actually live in the sky, but just metaphorically looking up in God's direction, but he's not willing to do it. He feels so ashamed and he beats 
his breast repeatedly. It's a sign of sadness that, that things are wrong and I can't fix it. And I'm overwhelmed by my sorrow of how broken and messed up everything is. And when he opens his mouth to pray, it's a very short, simple prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't claim to have anything inside him that could merit God's love and acceptance. He just asks God to help him. He says he's a sinner. Now, I know sinner is a word that can mean lots of different things in our culture. Biblically, it means someone who falls short of a standard or misses a mark. So if if God's law is a target right here and you're an archer, sin is turning around and shooting your arrow that way. That's what sin is biblically. It's it's looking at the mark that God has set up and saying, nope, I'm going to do my own thing. Go the other way. And this guy is saying that's how he's lived his life. If God says to live this way, he's just turned around and gone the other way. And his prayer is actually even more desperate than we see right here. Because in the original language, he doesn't refer to himself as a sinner. He refers to himself as the sinner. See, a sinner is like, you know, there's lots of sinners in the world. I'm just one of them. It's like a big bucket and we're all in there together. But the sinner is like, I am the ultimate one. If you look up sinner in the dictionary, you're going to see a picture of my face. Like no one else, the things that they've done, they can't compare with how bad and how messed up I am. I'm the worst of the worst. I'm as bad as they come. God, please help me. Please show me mercy. And to show mercy, it means showing compassion and help. But the word he uses here for mercy, it's not the normal word for mercy that you find throughout the New Testament. This word, it refers to showing someone compassion and help, even though that person did something wrong. He's not just saying, God, please help me. He's saying, God, I have messed up. I have nothing that I can contribute to make you owe me, to make me deserve your goodness, but please help me anyway. And this word mercy, it's not just a feeling of like compassion and kindness. It actually requires concrete action to become real. So his prayer, he's essentially saying, God, I've messed up. There's nothing good in me that I can bring before you to make myself deserving of your help, but please take pity on me. Please step in, please rescue me anyway. And that's his prayer. And Jesus tells us that this tax collector who came to God with nothing and just asked for God's help, he goes to his house justified. Justified is a legal term. It means you get the right verdict. If you're on trial for a crime and you're justified, that means you're found not guilty. You can go free. It actually comes from the same word as righteous at the start of the passage. So if you're justified, you have that right relationship with God. Jesus is saying this one, the tax collector, the horrible villain that everyone in society hates, goes home to his house with a right standing with God, even though he's done nothing good to deserve it. Isn't God so kind and generous that he would show mercy to someone as messed up with that? And if the story ended right there, I think everyone would be happy. Some people might question why God would forgive so deeply and so freely without making this guy fix everything he's done wrong but we could accept the fact that God forgives. This is wonderful. The the Pharisee, God's sidekick, he's good with God and thanking God for all his goodness. And then because God is so kind and forgiving, the tax collector is also on God's good side and everyone gets a happy ending. We all go home and celebrate how good God is. But that's not how the story ends, is it? Jesus adds two more words that become four words when they're translated to English. 
and they totally change the ending of the story. And those words are, rather than the other. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. See, it's not that the Pharisee goes home good with God and the tax collector goes home good with God. It's that the horrible, evil villain goes home with God and the hero doesn't. It's not God's good with all of us. You're all set no matter where you are. It's the one you expect to be the villain is on the right side. And the one you expect to be the hero is on the wrong side. All the Pharisee's goodness can't get him to God. And that's the story. So what does that mean for our lives today? Well, Jesus tells this story because he wants his original audience and us to see something very, very, very important. That repentance is the only path to God. Repentance means turning from our sin. It's admitting that we've been aiming at the wrong target and turning around back towards the right target. There are actually two words that describe that process. Repentance is turning away from the wrong target. Faith is turning towards the right target. And it's the same motion to turn away from the wrong target and towards the right target. But the turning away is called repentance. The turning towards is called faith. And Jesus is saying, if we want a right relationship with God, that is the only, only way to get it. And on one level, everyone in Jesus' original audience would have agreed that repentance is the path to God, right? They would all agree, if you do something wrong, you should repent, you should turn from it, you should trust in God, you should ask his forgiveness. They would have been completely in agreement with that. If you've been in and around church for any length of time, this should hopefully sound familiar to you, right? It's like Christianity 101. We need God to forgive us for the wrong things we've done. But Jesus is taking this teaching a step deeper because he's saying we need to not only repent and ask forgiveness for the wrong things we've done, but for the good things we've done as well. We need to repent and ask forgiveness, not only for the wrong things we've done, but for the good things we've done as well, because repentance is the only path to God. See, this is the Pharisee's problem. He is genuinely a very good moral problem. And in case you're not clear on this, it's a good thing that he's a good moral person. Right? Like he, he talks about how he doesn't commit adultery. It's good that he doesn't cheat on his wife. Right? God commands us not to commit adultery. It's good that he's staying faithful to his wife and obeying God. This guy's mistake is not being good and obedient. Jesus isn't saying, oh, you know, if this guy had just gone out and cheated on his wife, then he'd be all set with God. Right? That's, that's ridiculous. That's not what Jesus is saying. God wants us to be faithful to our spouses. He wants us to be honest. He wants us to be fair. The man's problem is that he got so caught up in obeying God's commands that he lost sight of the reason the commands were given in the first place. The Bible tells us over and over again, the reason God gives us commands is to teach us how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to teach us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you're obeying every single last letter of God's commands throughout the Bible, but your obedience is making you look down on the people around you rather than love them, you've missed the point. The things that look like true obedience aren't true obedience. You can think of it kind of like this. Imagine you're a firefighter. Everyone imagining? You're a firefighter. And someone comes up to you and they're like, you know, as a firefighter, it's very, very important that you be physically fit. You need to go lift weights, you need to go run, 
And is it true that as a firefighter, you need to be very physically fit? Yes, but why do you need all of that strength and, and fitness and endurance to fight fires so that when you're trying to carry people out of a burning building, you don't collapse and die, right? You need to be physically fit so you can stay alive yourself and help save other people's lives. That's why firefighters need to be physically fit. It's not important for firefighters to run and lift weights so they can win fitness competitions. It's not important for firefighters to run and lift weights so that when the fire department has a fundraiser, they look good with no shirt on in the calendar, right? As a firefighter, you run and lift weights so that you can save lives. It's a very important thing to do to, to be fit as a firefighter, but it's important because it saves lives. And if you as a firefighter get so caught up in this idea, firefighters, good firefighters need to be physically fit, that you ignore 999 calls when they come in because you're so busy in the gym, you're not a good firefighter, right? You're, you're actually missing the point. You're doing this important thing, but you're not recognizing the reason that you do that thing, right? And, and you know, the solution isn't just ignore the gym, stop running, sit by the phone all day, right? You need to be exercising as a firefighter, but you need to put exercise in its proper place. It's a means to an end. You do it for the sake of saving lives, not simply for the sake of being fit. And in the same way, God's commands in the Bible, they're a means to an end. They're given with the goal of helping us love God and love others, right? If you're robbing someone, you're not loving them. So God says, don't steal. If you're cheating on your spouse, you're not loving them. So God says, don't cheat on your spouse. If you're lying to someone, you're not loving them. So God says, tell the truth. But if you don't steal and you don't cheat on your spouse and you don't lie, and then you look at all your obedience and goodness and you think I'm better than everyone around me and you feel superior to them, you've completely missed the point. If your obedience feels like, makes you feel like you're more deserving of God's love than everyone around you, you've missed the point. If your obedience makes you feel like, I don't need God's forgiveness, everyone else does, you've missed the point. If your obedience becomes the grounds for you looking down on other people and thinking you're better than them, it's not true obedience. You've become that fireman who can't respond to the 999 call because he's too busy working out in the gym. And you know what's extra super dangerous about this? If you're doing it, there's a good chance you'll never notice until it's too late because you're not gonna see anything wrong with yourself. It's exactly what was happening with the Pharisee. He thought, I'm good, God must love me. God must think he's lucky to have me on his team because I'm such a good guy. But that's how sin works, it's deceptive. It hides itself in plain sight. It latches on to even the best thing we do, it just sticks a little bit of corruption onto them so that they're never truly completely good. For the Pharisee, all his good, good things that he did kept him from seeing that his insides were rotten. And it can happen to any one of us just as easily as it happened to him. You know, I was reflecting on myself this week and how I do this in my life. Right, my family, we've just hired a helper. It's been a wonderful blessing uh, for us to have her. And one of my goals as an employer is to be the absolute best employer possible. I want to be patient and understanding and kind and like, I, and I think that's a good thing, right? Like as Christians, if you are an employer, it should be your goal to be the best employer possible, 
right? We should be showing people that being a Christian employer makes a huge difference so that people want to work for Christians. And yet, it's so easy when you're doing these things to slip into looking at all the employers around you who don't do these things and thinking, I'm better than them because they're not doing this. And it doesn't have to be with that. It can happen in any area of our lives. All of us are susceptible to doing exactly what this Pharisee does. And we need God to rescue us from ourselves because the message of the Bible isn't just that bad people need God to save them from their badness. It's that good people need God to rescue them from their goodness as well. Not in the sense that we stop doing good things, but in the sense that he transforms our motives for all the good things we do so that our motives are genuinely good from the inside, not just seemingly good on the outside. Because no matter how good you are, you're not good enough to earn God's approval through your goodness. Right? No one in this room does as good a job keeping God's commands as that Pharisee did. And he fell short. And every time we try to earn God's approval through our goodness, it leaves us in a place that's far from God, no matter how externally obedient we may seem. We need to repent not only for our badness, but also for our goodness, because we're far more messed up than we ever realized. That's bad news, right? But there's also good news in this passage. It's not just that we're far more messed up than we ever realized, but it's also that we're far, far, far more loved than we ever dare hope. We're far more messed up than we ever realized, but we're far more loved than we ever dared hope. The fact that, that we're way worse than we thought, that even our best and most seemingly good and noble acts leave us far from God, that can only be good news if there's something that can be done to fix our problem. And the tax collector in this story shows us there's hope for us. There's something that can be done. What does he do? He comes before God with absolutely nothing. No accomplishments, no obedience, no status, nothing. And he throws himself completely upon God's mercy. He says, God, all I can bring to you, everything I have is my sin and brokenness. Please just meet me where I am and make a way for me to get to you. And God does it. And because God meets that tax collector where he is, and because he gives even that man a right standing with God, it means we can have hope. Because if he can be forgiven for all the terrible things that he's done, it means there's nothing, absolutely nothing that you, can I and, that you and I can do that's beyond God's ability to forgive. Whether that's something like cheating on a spouse or stealing or lying, or whether that's something like trying to be so good that we can earn our way to God and not need him. Whatever it is, there's forgiveness and acceptance available to all of us. The story is telling us there's, there's nothing we can do that's so good that it frees us from needing God's forgiveness and rescue. But there's nothing we can do that's so bad that it puts us beyond God's ability to save. And when we realize that, it actually transforms the way that we see the entire world. See, I think the way the Pharisee sees the world is the default way that many of us look at the world. There's two groups of people out there. There's good people, there's bad people, right? And with the Pharisee, he drew the line between good people and bad people with how morally upright you are. If you follow God's commands, you're good. If you don't, you're bad. Some people in our world draw the line there. But 
even people who draw the line in different places still tend to draw a line between good and bad and use that to separate people. A lot of parents and teachers and students look at school-age people and they're like, a good school-age person gets straight A's. A bad school-age person does not. Maybe we do it politically. Good people support my side politically. They vote for the people that I like. Bad people support the other side. And when we divide people up into good and bad, how many of us divide people up into good and bad so that we can be on the bad side? No, of course not. We divide it up in a way that lets us be on the good side, right? And because we are on the good side, it gives us the right to look down on everyone else who's on the bad side and judge them for being bad guys. It makes us feel justified in avoiding them and staying away from them and not actually talking to them. And if we have to keep a distance from them because they might pollute us and corrupt us, it actually makes it impossible for us to love them. And that's exactly what the Pharisees do throughout the ministry of Jesus. They stay away from the bad people Jesus hangs out with because they're like, they're gonna corrupt us. They're the bad guys. But that's not the only thing wrong with dividing up the world this way. When we divide up the world into good people and bad people, it makes us look down on them. It keeps us from loving them, but it also leads to looking for solutions that can't actually fix their deepest problems, right? Because when we're good and they're bad, what's the solution? Make them good like us. And so we try and make them like us, but that actually has no bearing on their relationship with God. So for example, is it good for the Pharisees of the world to want the tax collectors of the world to stop stealing? That's a good thing. But is it possible to stop stealing and still be far from God? Absolutely it is. Repentance is the only path to God. Parents, your kids getting straight A's in school, that's a good thing, right? It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing but it's possible to get straight A's in school and still be far from God. It's possible for someone, I know this might sound crazy in today's world, it's possible for someone to support the same political party from you and still be far from God. And it's possible for them to support the other pro political party and be close to God. When we divide the world up into good and bad people, it keeps us from loving people. It keeps us in a place where we judge them and look down on them, it leads us to looking for inadequate solutions to the problems of the world. But in contrast, Jesus, he's giving us through this story, a new way to look at and see the world. He's saying the way it breaks down is that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's standard. The only division, the only way that breaks down is whether we're forgiven or not. We're all sinners. It's just a question of whether we're forgiven sinners or unforgiven sinners. And here are the advantages of seeing the world this way. First, forgiven sinners can't look down on unforgiven sinners because we're no better than they are. We have all the same fundamental problem inside us as they do. It might look different how that plays out in different people's lives, but at the core, at the heart level, all those different behaviors come from the same place, from the sin that's already inside us. And so we Someone might have different sin than we do. That doesn't necessarily mean it's worse sin than our sin. We're all sinners. Second, seeing the world as full of forgiven and unforgiven people, it actually leads to giving true solutions to the problems. Because if the most fundamental problem that someone has is that they're a sinner, the only adequate solution is a savior. 
seeing the world primarily as forgiven versus unforgiven sinners, it allows us to point people to a savior who can genuinely fix their problem of sin rather than inadequate solutions that can't. And third, this perspective leads us to truly love people because we can come and talk to people on the other side of the divide as equals. We're not better than them. We don't stand above them. We have the same problem they do and we need the same solution that they need. And so we don't need to fear that we're gonna be polluted or corrupted by talking to them. We can genuinely love them and enter into relationships with them because we already have the same problems that they have. And it might be hard to learn to, to have this new perspective that the world doesn't break down into good people and bad people, but forgiven sinners and unforgiven sinners. Right? Learning to see the world this way, it's gonna make us have to let go of some of our prejudices. It's gonna make us have to let go of some of our wrong ways that we've been seeing the world, maybe for decades. It's gonna require humility. It's gonna make us have to see our own brokenness and not just everyone else's, because it's so easy to see everyone else's and so hard to see our own. But one of the big messages of the Bible is that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. That's why Jesus says at the end of the passage, I, uh, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He's saying God wants to exalt you. God doesn't want to keep you down in the dirt and, and just make life miserable for you. God wants to exalt you, but he knows all the things we typically do to exalt ourselves, looking down on others, judging them, keeping our distance from them so we don't have to love them because we believe we're superior to them. All those things keep us far from God. We do them to try and bring ourselves up, but they actually push us down. They take our deepest problem and they make it worse, not better. But the path to lasting life, to, to lasting blessing, to lasting exaltation is actually by lowering ourselves, by learning to love the people that we see as unlovable and by relying on God to transform our hearts so that we can do that. And when we lower ourselves in that way, God himself steps in to exalt us. It's an upside down kingdom. Now, why, why would God want us to follow that pattern? Lowering ourselves and then letting him exalt us. It's because it's the exact same pattern he followed in showing love to us. Do you remember when I said the tax collector, his prayer for God to be merciful requires concrete action? God is just, God is fair. He can't look at the wrong things we've done and say, I'm in a good mood today, forget about it. Something has to be done to pay the price. And biblically, we're told the price for the wrong things we've done is death. For God to be just, someone or something has to die. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He came, he paid the price for, for all the things that we've done wrong. Not just the bad things, but the good things with corrupt motives as well. So that despite all the wrong things we've done, we can go home justified. We can go home having a right status and a right relationship with God. But the story doesn't end with Jesus' death. God raised him back to life. God brought him and seated him at the right hand of the Father in heaven, giving him the place of ultimate authority in the universe. Because Jesus lowered himself and suffered for us, God exalted him to the highest place possible. And God said, as we lower ourselves to serve and love them as Jesus did, he will lift us up just like he lifted Jesus up. But we're never gonna be able to truly love others this way until we've let go of trying to earn God's acceptance through our efforts. 
we're not gonna be able to truly love people in this way until we've learned to see the world through God's perspective. That the world's not full of good people and bad people. The world's full of sinners, forgiven and unforgiven, but sinners who need a savior. And we're not gonna be able to, to love and serve others this way until we've experienced this kind of love by being forgiven and loved by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us and showing us how great our need is for you. But we thank you that despite the fact that our need is great, bigger than we recognize, that your provision for us is even greater. God, forgive us for the wrong things we've done. Forgive us for the good things we've done with wrong motives. Teach us to not rely on ourselves for standing with you, but to rely completely and totally on Jesus. Thank you that you love us. Teach us to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name, amen.